We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. So I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably a blue Bible underneath the seat around you, and it's there for you to use, and you can turn in that Bible to page 1016, and that will bring you to the text. So I'm going to go ahead and begin by just reading the text. So beginning in verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 3. And if you're new with us, we are uh, we're just working our way through the book of Peter. And this is where we are right now. And we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22. So follow along with me, if you would. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's our text this morning. So, a few things right up front. According to most Bible commentators, these verses I just read are some of the most difficult in the New Testament to interpret. Now, I keep thinking as a, as a pastor who, who has to work through sections of Scripture each week, I keep thinking I've dealt with the most difficult already. I thought I had done that in Romans because they said the same thing there multiple times. This is the most difficult section in the Scriptures that you'll ever deal with. And I thought I was done, and I am not done. I am not done. I am glad. I am glad that most of Scripture is not this way. Most of it is not this way, and, and the things that are very important, such as the gospel, are, are very clear, but there are some sections that are hard to understand, very hard to understand. This is one of them. In fact, uh, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, a pivotal figure of the Great Reformation of the 16th century, said of this section in his commentary on 1 Peter that it is a, quote, more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament and that he does not know for certain just what Peter means. And after many hours of study, I have to tell you that I too am not absolutely certain just what Peter means. Okay, I just want to share that with you. Among good Bible scholars and teachers, there's not much consensus, not much agreement, but rather a great variety of opinion about exactly how to interpret the statements that Peter makes in this section here. Now, uh, I'm not going to share with you all the different views uh, that I've read. I don't think that would be profitable, but I am just going to do my best to clearly, hopefully, communicate my current understanding of the passage and then try to make some application of it uh, to our lives. Additionally, additionally, I originally thought I would do this in one sermon, and then as I continued to work through it, I, I thought there's just too many... Um, 
things to try to grasp, that it would be too much to try to cram it all into the 55 minutes to hour and a half that you give me every Sunday uh, to preach. So I made it a, I'm kidding newcomers, kind of, kind of. I do go over, yes, uh, but I made it a two-parter, okay? So we'll come back to it next week. I'll review a little bit to kind of just try to reinforce some of this, try to make it clear. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you, I was just thinking about this. I, I've told my wife before, I, I part of you know, being a pastor for me is I, I, I told her I, I die a little every week. I die a little every week. And, and by that, I mean it's my wrestling with the scriptures. I, uh, I'm not afraid to get up and speak in front of people. I don't have that issue. But I do always enter this pulpit with fear and trembling. Because, you know, I'm dealing with the word of God. I'm bringing you that. And I will be held accountable for that. And I need to uh, do my very best to divide it rightly. And so with passages like this, I die a little more. I die a little more. But God is good. Uh, he uh, sustains. He gives his grace. And so I'll do the best I can with this section of scripture for you. But before we get into some of the more difficult details of this text, I, I want to just kind of up front, because this kind of grounds us, I think. It grounded me as I was moving through the text. I want to explain to you what I th why I think, why I think Peter wrote what he wrote here in this section, and what the general thrust of the passage is, before we dive into all the stuff of it, Okay. So why did he write what he wrote? What's the general thrust? So let me remind you of some things. If, uh, if you've been with us, you've heard this before. But one of the major themes of 1 Peter is unjust suffering as a follower of Christ. Unjust suffering as a follower of Christ. Or as he put it in the verses just prior to this section, in, specifically in chapter 3, verse 14. So here's context. It is the theme of suffering for righteousness' sake or suffering for good behavior in Christ. Good behavior in Christ. Suffering for those reasons. So right away, that's a, that's a theme. It's a major theme of 1 Peter. And, and even there, we have a little bit of trouble here in America necessarily comprehending fully the weight of that. Uh, there are places in the world that our brothers and sisters in Christ suffer and suffer greatly for following Christ, for their obedience to the Lord. Uh, here, that certainly can happen, but I, I don't think we know it or experience it on the same level uh, as others do and have and certainly did in the first century, first century Christianity. Now, I, I started this book, and one of the things I told you was that could change for us, that could certainly change for us, and so it would be good to to know how we are to respond in such situations, circumstances. Um, but it makes it a little more difficult to connect sometimes with the text. Okay? So, as I said, in Peter's historical context, you had Christians who were striving to follow the Lord, to, to please God, to live for Christ, to walk in his righteousness, just as we are called to do by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of them and us. And, and yet, instead of things going well for them on this earth, as, as one might uh, have generally expected or anticipated, right? I mean, it would be, it would be fair to think, if I, if I follow the Lord, if I do 
the things that I am to do, that God has called me to do, then, then won't I be blessed? Won't, I, won't life go better? And generally speaking, there is truth to that. Certainly the Proverbs teach that. But these folks were doing that, yet these, these Christians, these, these Christians in the first century church, were experiencing suffering for that. Okay? For that doing of good. For that following of Christ. So again, Peter, Peter is not just generally talking here about suffering in general, the kind of suffering that all of humanity experiences, whether that be suffering of disease or decay or just living in a fallen world and, and dwelling in fallen bodies. But he specifically, more often than not, what he's talking about here in 1 Peter is suffering directly related to following Christ, to living for Christ, to walking in his righteousness. And here you go, you're doing that, and you're thinking, what, what's going on, right? I'm, I'm doing what the Creator has called me to do, and I'm, I'm attempting to live for the Lord by the power of the Spirit, and, and I'm suffering for it. And, and they suffered, to one degree or another, at the hands of, of hostile unbelievers. Hostile unbelievers. Okay, they were hostile to God, Hostile to his son, hostile to God's rule over their lives. It's, it's, the, it's the situation of anyone who is separated from God and does not know him, does not have a relationship with him. He is, uh, he is not reconciled to him, but he's living as an enemy against him. And that manifests itself to one degree or another. So some uh, may not express that hostility, but others do and did and have throughout history. It's hostility directed towards God. And so this hostility directed towards God falls on the followers of God as they live for him because they hate God, therefore they hate those who represent him. And again, it, it manifests itself in various ways and to various degrees. So in such circumstances then, and again, I'm trying to get at, why would Peter write this? Okay, so he's been talking about this, right? Because remember he talked about like even servants, right? Even if you have a, an unjust, twisted master you're doing good, but he, he punishes you. You're following Christ, but he punishes you. I want you to continue to walk in righteousness. I want you to continue to show reverence and respect. And, and so you've you got these situations he keeps talking about. You've got this husband that does not obey the word that is against God. Why still follow God, honor God, trust him? And, and so Peter's saying these things. And regardless of their behavior, regardless if they push back against you or hostile towards you, I want you to continue to do the right thing. And, but they may be thinking, what's going on, you know? I mean, I'm doing the right thing, but is this is how it's supposed to be? Am, am I supposed to, to suffer unjustly like this? One might start to think, can anything good possibly come out of this? Out of this unjust suffering? Does this make sense? Is there any value in this? Now listen, one generally understands, Christian or not, that... There is value in suffering that is connected with bad behavior. Right? We understand that. We get it. There's value in that. In the sense that if one acts like a fool, then the consequences of that are destruction and problems and consequences. And that's good, right? Because hopefully that turns them away from their foolish behavior. Yeah? Right, so we, we can see there, there is some 
we, we right away can, we can see with our own eyes there is some value, certainly value, in suffering related to bad behavior. But that's not what this was. This was good behavior and suffering linked directly to that. What's that about? How could that possibly be good? Additionally, the ones suffering for following Christ might be tempted to begin to, to lose their hope, to lose their hope in the midst of their undeserved trouble, or wonder where, where the victory is that God had promised to them. That's kind of the historical context. Again, I think a little hard for us to relate, but try to picture what that might look like for the believer in the first century, and certainly, as I said, does look like for many believers in this world who do not have some of the protections that we have still in the United States of America. They might be wondering, where is this difficult road leading? Where is it leading? Well, beloved, as Peter shows in this passage... Not only can good come out of unjust suffering, okay? Not only can good come out of it, but the greatest good or benefit to mankind that has ever been achieved was achieved through the ultimate unjust suffering of all time. That is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And in addition to that, those who follow Christ and suffer for it can find encouragement as they look at that, at the unjust suffering of the Lord, because the outcome of this, of this unjust suffering was not destruction, was not ruin, but it was triumph. It was triumph. It was victory. And his victory, Christ's victory, assures every individual united with him through faith, every believer, every Christian, his victory assures their own eventual victory amidst their present undeserved suffering. That, that I believe is why Peter is, is writing what he's writing. He wants them to see that God is sovereign, that God does and has brought about his own great good and perfect plan through unjust suffering. And that the road of unjust suffering for the believer will end in victory just as it has, has for their Savior, who they're following in suffering for him because of it. One writer puts it this way. So it, try to keep that in mind as we dive into the details. I believe everything he's saying is really kind of, it's, just, it's flowing out of that thought in his mind as he writes this section. So Peter's point one writer says concerning this commentator, Peter's point is riveting here in this section and dramatic. He puts it this way. Believers will suffer for the sake of righteousness, 
for doing what is right. That's the verse 17 and 14, just this right before this section. All suffering believers can be encouraged that such is not a disaster. Right? Why would they need encouragement? Because it might appear that way. This is a disaster. But be encouraged that such is not a disaster, but rather the path to spiritual victory. The unequaled example of such triumph is the Lord himself who suffered unjustly and through that suffering conquered sin and the demons of hell. We'll get to that. That's verse 22. God indeed uses unjust persecution mightily for his holy purposes. Okay? So God is sovereign. We're back again. It's been mentioned a few times already. God is absolutely sovereign. Nothing Nothing is out of his control. He's using all of it, all of it, to bring about his perfect and good purposes, as we shall see here. And we can trust in that and have faith in that and find encouragement in that and confidence in that, hope in that. So that's the general thrust of the passage, and it's important, as I said, to keep that in mind. So now, let's, let's start working our way through it, okay? The first part, the very first part, is not the difficult part. So let's look at that. This is, this is really not disputed, or there's not a multiple opinions about this. It's just after that, once we step into the end of 18, 19, and 20, woo, there's some really interesting stuff there. So, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into it a little today. 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Man, that's beautiful. One writer puts it this way, these words have aptly been characterized as one of the shortest and simplest and yet one of the richest summaries given in the New Testament for the meaning of the cross of Jesus. According to the perfectly good, wise, and sovereign plan of God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Righteous one. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy righteous one. Completely, perfectly righteous one. The one who, listened never thought, spoke, or did anything evil. Never did anything contrary to his heavenly Father's will. Never! That cannot be said of you and I, brothers and sisters but rather always did what was right. Always followed his Father's will perfectly. Always did what was good. This one, this holy, righteous one, was made to suffer and die on the cross at the hands of lawless men. Nothing, nothing could possibly be more unfair or more undeserved than that. Could it? Could it? No. No. The righteous one suffered and died for the sins of the unrighteous ones. Who are the unrighteous ones, beloved? Who are they? Me. 
He bore the penalty that they, that we, deserved. Okay? You want to talk about unjust suffering? But in so doing, but in so doing, he accomplished the most incredible thing ever. He opened the way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. That's what that phrase there means, that he might bring us to God. Uh, I think of, was it last? I can't remember now. Thomas, when did you preach the reconciliation message? Wow. <laughs> My head's been spinning with this message. Yeah, so if you didn't hear that, you need to go back and listen to that message on reconciliation found in Colossians, the reconciliation of God. Beautiful passage. Beautiful message. But it was through how? Think about this. The king didn't come back and go, Rah! and just, you know, have his way and establish, you know, reconciliation with God. That is not how it happened. How did it happen? Just think about that. It happened in a way that you and I would never have thought that it would happen. It happened through unjust suffering. Through unjust suffering. Through this incredibly vile act. The creation murdered their creator. His suffering, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that's how the scriptures describe it in Acts 2.23. This was the plan of God. This wasn't random. This wasn't an accident. This was the plan of God. Was used by God to accomplish the greatest benefit that mankind will ever know. Christ's suffering was not for nothing. Unjust, yes but not for nothing, right? I can see the believers thinking, why? What is this for? It feels like it's for nothing. Trust me, it's not for nothing. Look to the Lord. God uses these things in powerful ways. You look to Christ, you see it was not for nothing. It was not in vain. It was not pointless. But rather it was mightily used by God to accomplish our salvation, our redemption, our eternal good. That's, wow, okay? I love the imagery here that is loaded into one of the verbs that Peter uses. It's, trans, it's the verb translated he, that he might bring, he might bring, might bring. That verb often describes someone being introduced or given access to another, such as bringing in of an individual for an audience with the king. So one writer puts it this way. That person would verify someone's right to see him, the king, and then introduced that person to the monarch. Christ now performs that function for believers. He is the one. Through his unjust suffering, he made it possible to bring a sinner into the presence of a holy and almighty God and introduce him and allow him to fellowship with him. Christ did that. How? How? 
through unjust suffering. This great good that we rejoice in was achieved how? Not through a show of mighty power. He just came in and crushed everyone and said this is how. But through humility, through pain. And yes, through undeserved of the most enormous kind, suffering. He was sinless. He was sinless. The last person that deserved to be there was Christ. There were thieves on, there was criminals on his right and criminals on his left. Their suffering was deserved. But his was not. But it was not pointless. It was not in vain. But achieved the greatest good you and I could ever, ever know. The reconciliation of sinful man to holy God. That is the uh, easier part of the text. Okay? So I think he starts with that. So Peter's not saying, just to be clear, Peter's not saying, he's not suggesting that, that our unjust suffering can accomplish such things. That's impossible. We, we cannot uh, bring about the reconciliation of man through our suffering. Only Christ could have done that. But it is to see and to note that, that God is sovereign over all and, and even unjust suffering must answer to him and is used by him to bring about his good and holy purposes. Look what he did with his own beloved son. Trust him. This is not being wasted on you, Christian. But I will use it to bring about my great good. And we've already seen that in Peter, right? There are, although it's not always explicit, it is implied that as he calls the Christians to live this life and to persevere even while being persecuted, to continue to do good, it is implied that by doing that, some will be drawn to Christ. That he can use that unjust suffering to prick the cold heart of the unbeliever who sees that and says, there's something unique here. I feel convicted for my sin. I see there's something special about Christ. And he uses that good conduct of the Christian who's continuing to persevere while suffering unjustly to bring another sinner unto himself. God uses it for his good, for his purposes. Example to the utmost in the person of Jesus Christ who suffered unjustly and through that suffering brought about reconciliation of sinners to God. Now, let's look back at the text. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay? Put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Now, some commentators understand Peter's comment that Jesus was made alive. And so put to death in the flesh, that's pretty obvious, right? Hopefully. Uh, he was killed. He physically died. He died. Body, dead. Okay? He was a real person. He had a real body. He had flesh, it was put to death. 
But what does it mean that he was made alive in the spirit? So he's talking about the work of the cross, and that's where his, the imagery is, that's where his mind is. He brought us to God, he was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Some commentators see that to be referring to Christ's resurrection. That this is what uh, Peter is talking about. Others, and you may have a translation like this, spirit in the ESV is not capitalized. So we would, in that case, you would think of the spirit of Christ or spirit of somebody, uh, our soul. Uh, other translations capitalize spirit. So now they make it a reference to the Holy Spirit. And they change it to made alive in the spirit to made alive by the spirit. So this is a reference to the idea that the Holy Spirit uh, caused him to be raised again. All these things are possible, okay? It's possible, and by the way, however you understand this passage will affect the, the next thing that's said, specifically the timing of it, which we'll get to in a second, in verse 19. But I'm just going to tell you that I lean towards Peter's statement as simply pointing out that his body was dead after he died on the cross, yet he remained alive. He remained alive, or he continued on in his spirit before being resurrected unto glory. That's the way I understand it. So it's not that he ever ceased to exist in the spirit or that his spirit died per se, but that Peter is just simply saying, listen, he died, right? He physically died, but he continued on in the spirit, which then sets him up to say what he's about to say next. So we know that he was dead for how long before he was resurrected? For a period of time, three, right? Three days, right? So he's, he's dead. His physical body is there in the tomb. Uh, we know that on the cross, he said this in Luke 23, 46, calling out with a loud voice, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Okay? So we see there he's committing himself to, to the Father. But... What happened during those three days? And this is where it starts to get a little interesting. Did his spirit go somewhere? Did it hang out with the Father? That sounds almost kind of... I shouldn't have said it that way. Is he, was he with the Father? It sounds a little light to kind of talk about the Lord that way. But, um, Well, the way I would understand it is in that state, his body in the grave, but remaining alive in his spirit, he went somewhere. So look back at the text. 1 Peter 3, 19-20, in which, being alive in the spirit, but dead in the body, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, uh, as I said before, there's a number of ways... The statements in this text have been understood by Bible scholars. So what I'm about to tell you is certainly one way to understand it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the idea that is generally presented uh, historically. And I'm going to tell you that after my study, I lean towards it, but I'm not 100% certain. I'm still not 100% certain that it all washes out exactly like this. And I'll try to help you see where I might lean another way. But by the way... Just so that we're clear, there is only one right meaning. Okay? 
So it's not like we just get to pick and choose, but we are doing our best. There is one right meaning. So when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a sit down with Paul because I have some questions about Romans when I went through it. And I'm going to have a sit down with Peter. And these are one of the things. And in fact, I actually look forward to that because I hope that the authors would come and, and maybe we'll spend our thousands of years in part just having them tell us and explain to us the scriptures accurately and properly. I look forward to that. So, uh, Jesus, here it is, okay? Here, here's the meaning I'm going to give you here of what Peter is saying. I believe it could be. Jesus, after dying his sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross for sins, and before he was resurrected, or, if you understand by the Spirit, or in the Spirit, to mean his resurrection, then it can also, the timing just changes a little bit, so this is a place he visited after he was resurrected, or as part of his ascension on his way back. We don't know. The problem is we don't have enough information, so we're trying to figure out the best we can. But I believe it was before he was resurrected, this in-between time before his ascension, before his resurrection. So before he was resurrected, he went in his spirit to proclaim a message to the spirits in prison. <laughs> you notice the text doesn't say anything else uh, in particular about where the prison is, who the spirits are, or what exactly Jesus proclaimed. And that's where it gets interesting. So then we do our best to try to piece things together. What could Peter possibly be talking about here? Because when he said it, he didn't explain it, which means that his readers understood it. So they, they somehow they would have understood. He didn't write it and go, ha, oh, this will be funny. Let him try to figure this one out. So they understood. They had knowledge. And so now we're 2,000 years removed. So sometimes these things can be a little more complex. Okay. So who are the spirits and what message did Jesus proclaim to them? So let me, I'll give you a reason why I take the position that I've taken. Some have thought maybe the spirits were contemporaries of Noah in the sense that, do you remember Noah's time? You remember all the folks there? What does the Bible say of them? We're going to look at it in a second. This is going to be a three-parter. That's what this is going to be. Uh, do you remember during Noah's time before the flood came? Do you remember what the Bible says concerning the population of the world? Wicked, violent, okay? Like just everyone other than Noah and his three sons, their wives, and Noah's wife, eight people in all that were delivered by the ark when God destroyed the world with the flood and everyone on it and the people on it. So some have thought that maybe these spirits are human spirits and Jesus went and proclaimed a message to them uh, let me just tell you, I don't accept that. I reject that. I, and the reason why is spirits, plural, okay, when used in the New Testament is almost always used without exception to refer to angelic beings. So that was enough for me. That was enough for me to say spirits here must be angelic beings. So we start with that. So according to Peter... These angelic beings, or I would t tell you, fallen angels or demons, because they're in prison, okay, are in prison. But why are they in prison? Well, because in the days of Noah, we can draw that from the text, they did not obey. What does that mean? That's a great question. That is a great question. And that's where, so, so far, I'm, this is where I go, but right here is where I'm not sure what they did. 
But I'm going to give you a, a suggestion, and it's one that is generally thought to be tr true or accurate. It's a traditional view. So for that, remember I told you we're going to go back to Genesis? Let's do that. Go back to Genesis 6. I don't know what page that's on, but it's way back at the beginning of your blue book, if you're using one of those. It's not going to show up on the screen, so you need to turn in your copy of God's Word or just listen as I follow along, because I want you to turn there and see it, if you have a Bible or flip to it on your iPhone, however you, whatever you do. So here we go. Now, just know that Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is a very contested passage, meaning that there is, a again, a variety of views concerning what's being said there, specifically this comment about the sons of God. But I want to read in context just this section here, because remember, we know something, right? So if you accept the fact that spirits are angelic beings, and I think, I think you need to, I personally, I feel pretty strong about that, and that they are in prison, and you believe that prison is a real place, okay? And that there's something associated with them being in prison and what happened in the days of Noah. Okay, you with me so far? What we're going to do now is go back to the days of Noah and see if we can figure something out. That's what we're doing. Kind of how we're investigating the scriptures together. So, in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land. Remember, the fall, we've got the fall of man, and, and then we've got this this promise that God would send a Messiah, we'll talk about it in a second, and then things are working out real quick, and man now multiplies on the face of the earth, so that's where we are. Man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God, that's that phrase right there, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God, there it is again, came into the daughters of man, they, um, yeah, that's what you think it means. They, they got together physically, and where am I? And, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so there it is, verses 1 through 4. Now watch. Right following that, this is what Moses writes. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was Filled with violence. I would not describe, just so you know, I would, you could not describe the earth that way now. Okay? There's violence, but it's not filled with violence, beloved. This is something unique. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. 
Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And then he goes on to give him specific instructions concerning the building of this ark. Okay? Real event, real story, really happened. Okay, but now you have some context. So who are the sons of God? Let me see if I can piece all this together for you in, you know, two minutes. It's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. But the oldest interpretation, according to uh, one pastor that I uh, highly respect, and th this is true what he's saying, the oldest interpretation, the traditional Jewish view of ancient rabbis and modern Jewish commentators, as well as the early church fathers, was or is that the sons of God were demons or fallen angels. Demons or fallen angels. Okay? So what is going on? If that is true, if that is how, and by the way, not everyone, there are other views about who the sons of God are. Some believe they're human beings, not angelic, not fallen angels, not demons. Remember what we read about the sons of God? If they are fallen angels or demons, you remember what they did? They took to themselves what? Many women to themselves as wise and did what? Uh, pro they procreated. So what is, how am I even supposed to understand that? Well, most who hold this view believe that fallen angels at this time were demons, that uh, they possessed men's bodies and took these multiple women to themselves. It's a violation of God's covenant of marriage. And they took them to themselves to procreate with them, producing powerful, warrior-like, evil demon children, if you will. Human, human. We know they're human because they all died in the flood. But having, as one writer put it, a pervasive influence on them from the demons. Okay? So this is a traditional view, beloved. Now, there are, right away there are questions that will pop into your mind. They, they pop into my mind, and this is why I'm not 100% certain. I'm not 100% certain this is what's going on here, that this is... This is what the demons did. I know the demons were disobedient. I do believe the demons were disobedient in a, in a specific way or a special way in the time of Noah. I do believe that's what Peter's talking about, and they have been confined to prison for their disobedience. But is it this? Are they the sons of God? And did they, in some way that we can't fully grasp, possess men, and with those men, attempt to uh, populate the earth with demon babies? In a sense, not that they were demons, but demonically influenced to a degree that we just don't understand. So being that, all the earth was filled with violence. So bad that God said, I'm done. But I'm not done because I have a promise to send a redeemer. So if I wipe out all of humanity, no redeemer's coming. But I will save this eight. And through them, I will continue my beautiful and wonderful plan for redemption for humanity. Okay, so it's very, it's very possible. And then generally, those who hold that view look to other passages. So I'm going to look at two. There's two. And, and, and they take this view with them into that passage. Both the passages I'm going to show you could be interpreted without that view in mind. But with that view in mind, you'll see how they can make sense of it. And, and, I, and I understand it. It's a, it's, a, it's a respectful position. So 2 Peter 2 4 through 5. So you can flip over to page 1018 in those blue Bibles. We were in 1 Peter, so this is the next book right after 1 Peter. Let me read that to you. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5. 
There, Peter, this is the same guy that wrote 1 Peter. Here he writes 2 Peter. And there he says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, what is he talking about? Is this the same thing? Then he says in verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, so people see a connection there, okay, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and then a few verses later he says, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, that's about Lot, he talks about Lot rescuing him from Sodom, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And generally it has been thought that not only is he talking about Sodom, but also these angels who despise these fallen ones, who despised authority, and, and because of their defiled passions, despised the limits that they were supposed to be limited to and attempted to cohabitate with flesh and produced out of this union some weird thing that resulted in such a bad situation on the face of the planet that God decided to destroy the whole thing, save eight. Also Jude 5, that's page 1027. There, uh, it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That sounds like prison to me. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serves as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay? So, all right. So let me try to just quickly connect the dots before you. You also have in Luke 8.31 as an example this, do you remember this time? Jesus is on the earth and there's, uh, there's, uh, a demonically possessed man. Who are you? Legion. For we are many. And they, they know Jesus. They know who he is. And they ask him, are you going to cast... Don't, they actually ask not to be cast into the bottomless pit. Like, it's a pl- wherever it is, it's a place they don't want to go. And for whatever reason, Jesus grants them their request and sends them into the pigs. Do you remember that story? That's interesting. So he sends them into the pigs, but there's a place they don't want to go. It's possible, connecting all these things together, it is possible, if we put them all together, understanding to be speaking of the same thing, that there is this prison. I believe there's a prison. Now, how the demons got there that are there, that's, are they the sons of God? Are they angels, fallen angels? I don't know, but hold on. But there is a prison where some demons are being kept. They are not allowed free to roam, and they are being kept until the day of punishment. Okay? They did something really bad. It very well could be that they did this thing, they were the sons of God. It very well could be. Okay? I believe either way, these demons were put in prison for their rebellious acts in the time of Noah. But as I said, I'm not certain that their acts were just as I described to you. But I respect that position and I lean slightly towards it because it makes sense, it fits. 
It's just that it raises all kinds of questions. Like, how does that work? You know what I mean? Does that... And nowhere in the scripture are we told explicitly, specifically that, those things. It's a matter of putting things together. And we can recognize that it was a traditional view and it was held by early church fathers and so on and so forth. But again, the scriptures don't say specifically the sons of gods are fallen demons who possessed men and cohabitated with women and produced demon-like children. The scriptures don't say that. We're doing our best to try to figure out what's going on. Okay? One pastor just says it this way. Uh, he says he, that he takes the spirits to refer to demons in First Peter who influenced the terrible wickedness on earth in Noah's day when put in hell or this prison, a bottomless pit, to await the final judgment. That's the position I take no matter what. I do believe that's what's going on here. Some say that these demons, he goes on to say, cohabitated with women before the flood, leading to an increase of sin on earth in that day. But I think that view creates many more problems than it solves. These demons influence people then, just as they do now, only to a greater extent then. When God judged the world through the flood, he also judged these demonic forces. Okay? So, quickly, because I'm, I'm so far over, but I have to just finish this for you. Because you'll be like, what? What was all that about? Okay, because I'm trying to explain the text to you, to show you where, where are we going with this, all right? So, the demons follow me, so I can kind of bring you along. The demons... Okay, the spirits are demons. They're fallen angels. That's my position. They are in prison. They are in prison for their rebellious ways during the time of Noah. They, whatever they did, whether it be that they cohabitated with women and that was the reason for violence, or they had a special influence, they, they did something to make the world a nasty place. So nasty that God decided to wipe it all out. Okay? So in the process of wiping it out, he cast these guys into this prison. Jesus now... 2,000 years, you know, no, not 2,000 years later. I'd have to think about the math. Later on, much later, help me, Thomas, help me. I'm up here, I'm dying. I don't remember what the math is. But sometime later on, okay, because you have Noah. I just couldn't 4,000 years and something of that nature. So here we have now Christ, as God promised, comes into the picture, dies, right? He's sent to a cross, and he dies there. Yeah? Dead in the flesh but alive in the spirit. And he goes to that prison and he proclaims something. He proclaims something. So follow me. Ever since, I'm going to quote this here from this guy. Ever since the fall, I want you to, you got to get a big picture of Christianity and God because then things start to come alive to you. You see things differently. He says this, I love this. Ever since the fall of Satan and his demons, the fall, when God originally kicked them out of heaven and Satan for his rebellion and his pride, there has been an ongoing cosmic conflict between the angelic forces of good and evil. There's a real battle going on. Okay? After the devil's apparent victory in inducing Adam and Eve and consequently all their descendants to fall into sin, God promised to the evil one himself eventual destruction by Messiah who would triumph with a crushing victory over him, despite suffering a minor wound from him. We're not going to look at that right now. We're going to do that next time. It's Genesis 3.15. So you hold on to that, you come back, and we'll talk about that. But Genesis 3.15 is called by scholars the first gospel. It is the promise, I believe, absolutely, it is the promise. This whole thing just unfolds, just a mess 
Adam, he creates this beautiful world. He puts Adam and Eve in it. Everything's wonderful. And who comes in to mess with it? Satan. Right? The arch enemy of God. He looks to destroy God. To undo God. He wants to be God. So he comes in. And he deceives. Ah, he thinks he's winning. But, I'm kind of doing it anyway. But God says to the serpent, the deceiver, he says something to him. We're going to look at it next week. But in what he says to him, he basically tells him, I'm going to, there's going to be one that comes through the seed of the woman, and he's going to crush you. So what does Satan do? Wait a minute. I'll put a stop to that. I'll put a stop to that. So, could it be, or is it, and you can kind of look throughout time, it's not could it be, it is, but even in the course of, you have all these people on earth, Satan is looking to destroy creation. He's looking to, to upset God's plan. He's looking to undo humanity so that this one, this promised one, would never come because it is this one who will crush him. So if he can, possibly, if he could like interfere with the human line, create demon children, or if it's just a matter of make them so violent and wicked that there's nothing left for God to do except kill them all, then maybe, maybe this evil one can prevent the plan of Almighty God that will bring an end to Satan's tyranny. You see? You see? And beloved... This will help you see things better. You remember the plans unfolding, right? Remember we read about Isaac and Rebekah? We're seeing the plan unfold. It was re-Genesis. We discover that this one would come through a nation, through a people. Who, who? The Jewish people, the chosen ones of God. There is no need to wonder anymore why they have been the target of such animosity and violence and persecution throughout their existence. If Satan can destroy them, now he knows, because he's not omniscient, he doesn't know all things, he's, as this is revealed, he sees it being revealed. And now he goes, okay, now I see, as the plan keeps unfolding, now I see who the one is going to come through. So the attacks come, the attacks come. Huh? Do you see this? This makes life and history and current events very exciting in the sense that it is not just stuff that's happening. It is God's plan unfolding. There is a cosmic battle going on. You might wonder, you might wonder, well, then why, why is there still persecution against the nation of Israel after the Messiah already came? I am so glad you asked that question because God made a promise to give a kingdom to these people. So, if they're not there to be given a kingdom to, by the way, who's going to rule over that kingdom? Him, Christ, the Messiah. If, if there is no people left to come back to, then theoretically Satan would win. Oh, but he's not going to win. He's not going to win. And so the writer says, you're thinking about this all throughout history. I'm going to quote this last thing and then we're almost done. <laughs> Satan, listen, Satan therefore sought to prevent this being crushed. This one who would come and crush him, we'll look at it next week, by the genocide of the Jews. Now as you begin to read the Old Testament, you see what's going on. You see in Esther, there was a plan, right? They were going to wipe out the people. There was a plot. 
And if you wipe out the people, you destroy the messianic line. So there was a plot there. There was a plot to do it during the time of Joash. Well, when all that failed, when all that failed, right? He attempted to kill the infant Messiah. Do you remember that? Do you remember the king? This genocide that happened, kill all those babies, just doing whatever he can to hopefully wipe out the Christ child? Who do you think drove that? Satan. Thwarted at that, he tried to tempt Christ himself to abandon his mission. You see, the temptation of Christ, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Later, Satan incited the Jewish leaders and their followers to mob action that resulted in the Lord's crucifixion. Yes, I got him! And then he says, the demons, the ones in prison, may have been celebrating their seeming victory in the wake of Christ's death and burial. I love this. But only too soon be profoundly and permanently disappointed when the living Christ himself arrived. And what did he come and proclaim? Victory. Victory! You have lost! I have conquered sin and death. And so he triumphed over Satan and all his demon followers at the cross, and that was the message. It was a message of victory, a proclamation of triumph. And why? Why tell us that, Peter? Well, for two reasons. One, it happened. Okay? But two, because this unjust suffering, right, led where? To the triumph of Christ over sin over the devil, over Satan. They have lost. They have lost. And it was through unjust suffering that this triumph came. Beloved, we are united with Christ. We may experience unjust suffering for following Christ. But the enemy that stands against us has lost. And being united with Christ, the end of our road is glory. It is triumph. Our Savior has won the day. You see that? You see the encouragement in that? Anyway, come back next week because I got to make sure you know that baptism doesn't save you. I got to make sure I explain that to you and how we understand that. And we'll talk a little bit more about this beautiful passage. And please go and get your children right away and tell them I'm very sorry. And um, yeah. All right, so you are, I'm just going to say yes, you are dismissed. You are dismissed. <laughs>